to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In John 11, we learned that the raising of Lazarus not only caused many of the religious leaders to believe in Christ, but it also led others on the council to decide to put Jesus to death. For that reason, Jesus and his disciples withdrew to a city called Ephraim, which was on the edge of the wilderness. Knowing that uh, Jesus would come to Jerusalem, however, for Passover, the people started to look for him in the city, and the religious leaders were looking for him too because they were wanting to arrest him. In the midst of it all, John 12 begins with Jesus returning to Bethany in the very shadow of Jerusalem, and there a dinner is given in his honor. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love this because we see Martha is serving, as was her custom, and again, Mary is at Christ's feet. But both are serving Christ according to their gifting. Both are trying to bless him out of gratitude for what he'd done in raising their brother Lazarus from the dead. That being said, though, their service was very different. John had told us previously in John 11 verse 2 of the event that happens here now where Mary anoints the Lord with her perfume and wipes his feet with her hair. The perfume that she used was pure nard. It was a sweet-smelling oil that came from mountains far away, and it was very, very valuable. And the bottle was worth over a year's wages. Though the amount was small, though, the fragrance of Mary's perfume filled the whole house and everyone was affected by it as she served Christ. But let me also point out that the delicious aroma of Martha's cooking also filled the whole house. They may have shown their gratitude to Christ in different ways, but both of their offerings were pleasing fragrances to the Lord. There's something prophetic, however, about Mary's actions here, because she pours out her treasured possession on the one who is so soon to be poured out for her. What she does is very challenging to me, because it makes me wonder if we are truly willing to give of our best to the Lord, or are we only willing to give him what we happen to have left over? Mary gave of her best. It's hard to imagine that anyone would not have been blessed by Mary's generous act, and yet there was one critic who objected. Verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, 
Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Judas seemed offended that the perfume had not been sold to feed the poor, and many of those watching very likely thought that Judas was a wonderful person who really cared for others. But they would soon learn that Judas was motivated by greed and not a concern for the less fortunate. The Lord Jesus knew his heart, and he tells Judas that Mary has done this wonderful thing for him and that she unknowingly has anointed him in preparation for his burial. Actually, it's interesting to me that this Mary was not one of the women at the cross, and nor did she go to the tomb after Christ's death. You see, she ministered to him while he was still living. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So many of the religious leaders were beginning to rethink their stand on Jesus because of what had happened to Lazarus. And yet, there were others who remained untouched by the power of God and actually they wanted to put Lazarus back in the tomb as quickly as possible. In verse 12 we see Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and by the way this is recorded in all four gospels. Here John tells us the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. We know actually that this is Palm Sunday and we called it that today because the people waved palm branches which is actually a sign of celebration in the Middle East. Imagine the scene as the procession approaches the gates of Jerusalem. The crowd begins to shout and cheer, proclaiming that Jesus is the King of Israel. They shout Hosanna, which means save now. And surely as their cry goes up, all eyes begin to turn toward that city gate. Zechariah 9.9 prophesied concerning the Messiah, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Israel's promised king was about to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And that is a very important detail because in those days, a king who came riding on a donkey meant that he was coming in peace.
Interestingly, when Christ returns to earth in Revelation 19, at his second coming, he will come upon a white horse, and that has an entirely different meaning. For a king who entered a city on a horse signified that he was coming in victory to judge. John 12 verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. When they say the whole world has gone after him, it's really prophetic because Surely in time, the whole world will seek after Christ as the gospel goes forth. The Greeks were already beginning to express an interest in Jesus and in his teaching. Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Well, we're not told if these Greeks ever did see Jesus, but there are several things to notice here from these verses. Though being Greek, they obviously believed in the living God because they were among those who had gone up to worship at the festival. But they had not yet converted to Judaism because they were still referred to as being Greeks rather than as being Jews. What's important here, though, is that whereas the Jewish religious leaders continually ask to see a sign, these non-Jews ask to see Jesus. The whole world is really beginning to go after him. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He tells him clearly that he's about to be glorified. He is to be exalted. Jesus does not focus on the crucifixion, but rather he focuses on his glorification that will follow. In verse 24, he tells them that this is unquestionably true, that a seed on its own is useless. It remains just that, a seed. However, if it dies, if it is buried, it will bring a huge crop. And so it is with Christ Jesus. His death will bring forth new life and a fruitful 
church. In part, this passage is a picture of what the death of Christ will accomplish, but there is more to his message. He goes on in verse 25 to say, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This means really that we have to be willing to let go of our old worldly way of life. The religious leaders were trying so desperately to hold on to their place in society. They loved their old way of life so much that they were about to miss out on eternal life. Look at what Jesus says in verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Again, we see here that those who belong to Christ follow him. For where he is, his servant will be also. So instead of asking him to bless what you've decided to do, ask him to lead you. Ask him to teach you how to follow. The servants of Christ receive honor from God, and that far outweighs the honor of men that the Pharisees so desperately wanted. In verse 27, Jesus went on to predict his death. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's clear that Jesus was feeling troubled. He knew that suffering awaited him. Yet even so, he doesn't ask the Father to spare him because he really knows that he's been sent to die from the very beginning. Seeking no way out, Jesus rather asks that God's name would be glorified through him. And I find that very challenging. Are we like that in our devotion to God? Or are we always praying for an easy, comfortable lifestyle? Are we willing for God's name to be glorified through us, irrespective of the cost? Sometimes Christians wonder why the church today isn't more like the church of the first century. But do you see that many times today we're busy praying for very different things than they were. Few of us today are willing to pray, Father, your will be done. Glorify your name in me, whatever the cost. Jesus said, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. We realize, of course, that the father is speaking here. And he says that he has glorified his name through Christ's life. And now he's about to glorify his name through Christ's death. People weren't sure what they'd heard. And Jesus clearly went on to tell them that the voice was for their benefit, not his. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus begins to speak of the death he's about to die. And he says that three things are about to happen. He says that judgment is about to be poured out, 
that Satan, the prince of this world, is about to lose his grip, and also that through Christ's death on the cross, people of all kinds will be drawn to him. So let's look at that in a bit more detail. What is about to happen is going to be a turning point. The cross will be the world event that causes judgment, the division between right and wrong. The cross will clearly separate those who do believe from those who do not believe in Jesus. In other words, Jesus' crucifixion is the very thing that will reveal who belongs to Christ and who belongs to the ruler of this world, Satan. Not only that, but at the cross, Satan is defeated, which is the meaning of Christ's comment that the ruler of the world is about to be driven out. In Greek, the word for that term driven out helps us to understand that the cross of Christ is what causes Satan to lose his grip on mankind. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan has ceased to exist since the cross. On the contrary, scripture tells us that he's very active even today. For example, when writing well after Christ's death on the cross, Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verses 8 to 9, that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he says that we should resist him standing firm in the faith. So Satan is still prowling around. He's still seeking to devour and he is still to be resisted. Not only that, but then Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13 to finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. There is very definitely a spiritual battle that's still raging all around us and we're to take our stand in the Lord's armor. That being said though, Satan is a defeated enemy. For those who trust in Christ Jesus, Satan's power is not what it once was. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can be free. We've been bought back, redeemed from the enemy's grasp. And all of that was accomplished by Christ as he was lifted up on the cross. Now Jesus is exalted. His work of redemption is complete and all people groups will be drawn to him without exception. But do you notice he says he will draw people he will not force people to come to him. We still have a choice as to whether or not we respond to his call. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the Lord that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? You see, the people struggled to understand. Jesus was talking about being put to death. But how could their Messiah, the promised one of God, come only to die? 
They, they knew that the scriptures of old said that the Messiah's kingdom would be an eternal one. And so surely the Messiah would live forever. They wondered if Jesus was using that title, the Son of Man, about someone else. Jesus doesn't really explain the fact that his kingdom is a spiritual one. It just says he goes on. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. In verse 36, Jesus urges them to make the most of this opportunity to be saved while they have it. His public ministry is about to come to an end and he encourages them to believe in him as the light of the world so that they might become children of light. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John reveals that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And we see that theme repeated here in his gospel. Did the crowd take advantage of what was being offered them? Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Notice in verse 41, we're told that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him when he said these things. Jesus, according to the text, had done so many signs and yet they would not believe in him. So despite the clear evidence, people actually chose not to believe in him. And according to Isaiah, God had revealed his arm, in other words, his power to the people through Christ, and they deliberately chose not to believe. Pride made their hearts even harder. And I think many of us have witnessed that for ourselves. I, I know that I've seen many people who take a very public stand against God find it more and more difficult as time goes on to concede that they may have made a mistake. That is the spirit of what Isaiah is saying here. The person who rejects the clear revelation of God in Christ will end up so hardened that a retreat from that position ends up being impossible. But it's not all bad news. Look at verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. 
So there were many like Nicodemus and his friend Joseph of Arimathea who believed in Jesus, even though they were part of the ruling council. But do you see the problem here? Many of them were still ruled by fear, and so they decided to keep their views secret just in case it cost them their position of authority. And so Jesus reminds them here that some things are of greater value than the praise of men. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. This is part of Christ's final public message. And so he re-emphasizes many points in it. Verse 44, the person who believes in Jesus believes in God the Father who sent him. If you look at Christ, you will see God the Father, according to verse 45. And verse 46, Jesus is the light. Whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. When Jesus came to earth the first time, he came as saviour, not as judge. However, if you choose to reject him, you are really condemning yourself. According to verse 48, the word of Christ that a person rejects will be the very basis for their judgment on the last day. Reject him and you reject God the Father. Understand this, that those who have always wanted to live separate from God, who have not wanted his interference in their lives, they will, in the end, be given their desires for all eternity. They will be separate from God and they will be forever cut off from his saviour. So far, the timeline of Christ's last week of ministry has been something like this. On Sunday, he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. On Monday, according to the other gospel writers, he cleansed the temple for a second time. Tuesday and possibly Wednesday was spent with the religious leaders who tried to find fault with him. And you can read about that in Matthew 21 through chapter 25. And then next time, as we begin John chapter 13, we'll be joining Jesus and the 12 disciples on the Thursday evening when we see them at the Last Supper together. In fact, John chapter 13 through 17 all occur on the night of the Last Supper. But more of that next time. You won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts today. Lord, I pray that all of those listening to this message today will be convinced of your truth and that they will give their lives to you. 
Lord, I would hate for anybody to be separated forever from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Father, I thank you and I praise you for your word today. And I pray that it would go on to truly transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.